The What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good morning and good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. And today we have uh, a fun, special pleasure, special guest for me, uh, someone that we did a town hall with a couple of weeks ago, and now we get to do this so that we have the rest of the world able to listen in. Uh, I have Dr. Sir Michael Jacobs, who is the Clinical Director of Infection at the Royal Free Hospital in London. He is also a, uh, a, a physician on the front lines, and we're going to talk more about that. Mike, thank you for joining us today and really excited to have a second version of our conversation. Yeah, it's great to talk to you, Aaron. Thanks very much for having me back. Well, thanks for being back. And uh, I think people will figure out pretty quickly that, not to say a lot of my guests aren't people that I would love to have maybe you know a second time in two weeks, but you were one where when we were doing the questions, we probably could have talked for another two hours and um, wouldn't have run out of conversation material. And I think people will figure this out pretty quickly. One of the things that you opened up with on the town hall that I'd love for you to share with our new guests is uh, what a day in the life looked like for you pre-COVID-19 and now how, how all that has sure. changed. Well, like, let's talk I'm an infectious about the, diseases the physician. And uh, to frame that, particularly for your US listeners, um, it's a very different specialty in the UK. It's a sort of name above the bed specialty, which means that we have wards with patients in and we are directly responsible for their care. And that contrasts within the US where largely it's a consulting specialty to patients under the care of other teams. And so my usual day before COVID would be caring for patients with all sorts of infections from the really very common and ordinary like um, urinary infections and skin infections, pneumonias, um, to travel associated infections and very rare and exotic things that would arise from time to time as well. And uh, I suppose that's the great interest in the specialty. It's uh, very, very broad. And um, the sort of main role of an infectious diseases physician is it's like a medical detective is trying to find out what the cause of the illness in a patient is who presents with symptoms that are, are like an infection. But uh, things have changed very much for me in the last few weeks. And the way they've changed is that we've really had to focus all our effort on one disease so absolutely in contrast to what we were doing before. And that one disease, of course, is COVID-19. And we've had to approach this by making some really substantial changes to the way we work because of the numbers of patients and the acuity of those patients as well. And one thing we've had to do is as a team in a, in a large hospital that I work in, we've had to break ourselves up so that we contribute our expertise to many of the other teams in the hospital so that we form lots of groups of people who are capable of responding to COVID and treating COVID patients and so on. So our team has broken up and I've lost that sort of day-to-day -day immediate working with my colleagues. But at the same time, I've gained working with lots of new people. And that's been a pretty special experience, actually, because I've learned that... Uh, working with all these um, people who I might have had some sort of prejudices about before. There are a lot of professional boundaries in big hospitals, as you can imagine. Right. And, and surprise, surprise, they turn out all to be uh, motivated by all the same things. They are very smart people. 
they're interesting, they've got a different perspective on things. And actually, I think that will have a lasting effect on the relationships around a very large organization. There are about 5,000 people working in the building that I work in. And um, I think it's made a big difference to the relations, not only just between doctors, but also, of course, across traditional professional boundaries between doctors and nurses and allied professionals like physiotherapists and occupational therapists. And it seems so obvious, but I think we're all looking at each other and saying, well, okay, I get more what you do and how you contribute to the whole big picture and so on. And I think it's been a, a, a sort of, um, how should I put it? The way the modern world has gone and the need to manage everybody has meant that we've gone into rather vertical structures of doctors being managed and nurses being managed and other professions being managed. And actually, when we have the common focus of the patient at the center of this, I'm not sure that's the right way to approach this. Actually, we're all part of the team together. And I think we should be managed as multi-professional teams rather than in these vertical professional structures. And I think that's something we'll probably learn from this again, or I should say relearn, because actually that's how it used to be. Well, it's interesting and also interesting that such an inhumane disease has brought out the humanity in a lot of us, right, in the ways that you're talking about it. And I've heard numerous examples of companies in addition to hospitals or institutions breaking down the silos and people working in a way, you know, with other people like they've never worked before. So I love hearing that echoed. And uh, that was an interesting point where, you know, we do talk about being patient centric, but uh, really making sure that it is a team and that everyone's playing the right role and, and being used in the right way. One of the things that I do want to talk about is um, you have Sir in your title, and it's because you were knighted by the Queen. You're one of, uh, I think you had mentioned, 3,000 knights and dames in the UK. You were knighted for the work that you did fighting Ebola, which was one of the other major global pandemics. Uh, what lessons did you learn from that that you're able to apply to the current situation? Well, although a very different question, it follows on exactly from what we were talking about, because Although I was knighted, it's the nature of the honours system that it recognises individuals. But in a way, that was a wholly inappropriate recognition of what was done, because as you can imagine, it required a vast team effort to achieve what we wanted to achieve at the time. And we did learn then exactly the lessons that we've just talked about. But the difference between Ebola and COVID, certainly from... Um, the UK and actually from the global perspective as well is that Ebola, although devastating in its own way and obviously in the affected countries, was very focal by comparison with COVID. It wasn't a pandemic in any sense of the word. And so those lessons were learnt on a very small scale. And I certainly learnt those lessons personally, and I hope the people around me did as well. But we had no traction in the system to make any substantial changes. And I think that's the really big difference now with COVID. I think there's real traction in the system. And uh, I feel slightly awkward about this conversation, Aaron, because we're having this slightly upbeat conversation about what we're learning from COVID and so on. And we haven't yet mentioned the horrors that go with it as well, of course. And, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier about humanity. And actually, at the peak of the COVID pressures, we could do the medicine, but preserving humanity in doing that medicine was actually one of the greatest challenges we faced, not least because the patients were separated from their relatives, from the people that we would normally interact with and support, and we were unable to do so. And it was very easy to feel, well, 
it's just survival mode here. We've just got to give the right medicines to the right people and look after them and forget the fact um, that we actually have real patients there and preserve all that humanity. And so I think when the pressure was really high, it was easy to lose that. And we've got to really try and bring that back into, into our thinking now. Now, that's a great point. I guess in some ways it's almost like We've been surrounded by it so much and now seemingly so long for the last, you know, I guess it was really since January, right? It wasn't impacting us, but China started to be greatly impacted. And we have this tendency probably as human beings to start to become numb to things, which is, you know, too bad and and frustrating that um, we have that as an issue. But you're right. You know, we do need to keep our eye on the on the the issue at at hand. I don't want to say eye on the prize because there's certainly no prize with COVID-19. Um, so thank you for the reminder. And it is, you know, it's a horrible disease. And I know we talked a little bit about some of that on the the town hall. One of the things that I do want to dig into a little bit is, um, we had some questions from our London team that I didn't get a chance to ask you, but I thought this was a particularly interesting one. And that is, you know, as someone that's in your role, is there a particular response tactic that you've seen another government implement that you recommend for the US or the UK in the you know, issue of the pandemic here that's helped and maybe we should be learning a lesson from it? So it's quite clear that the epidemic has been rather different in different countries for all sorts of cultural and demographic reasons and population density and the mix of ethnicities. And so I think that um, some of the differences or the heterogeneity that we've seen around the world is actually highly appropriate. And it's a good thing that people are responding differently, obviously trying to learn what you can from each other. I think we can probably now begin to look forward a little bit to the phase where the numbers are beginning, if anything, to decline and we hope to keep them down there. And I suppose the most important thing we're all recognizing now is that we have to put in place some of the conventional public health measures, particularly testing, contact tracing, isolation of cases within their own environment usually, in order to try and keep the the number down. Now there's, there's clearly a point where if the case number gets so big, that strategy no longer works. You just can't keep up with the spread of disease. So I'm not really saying this is a criticism of what has happened. And I think this is about looking forward to how can we begin to live with this disease a little bit more in the future. And I think a lot of the discussion around COVID is a little bit handicapped by looking backwards. But, you know, we've got to start from here today. And I think we can learn a little bit from what's happened. But it's very, very easy. Sometimes I find myself criticizing some of the decisions that have been made coming before me. And then I reflect on the fact that I'm making that criticism 48 hours later with new information that actually wasn't available at that time. And also, there are lots of things that have been done that we simply didn't know what the effect of those would be. And a lot of what we're doing is empiric in terms of those big public health decisions. And so it's very easy to come up with alternatives or to criticize and so on, but actually they're just as empiric as the decisions that were being made. And a lot of this is about just all pulling together behind what's being done and being responsive enough to change as necessary if they turn out to be the wrong decision. I think one of the huge problems here is that maybe 
politics or the media, we can argue forever about how that sort of vicious circle works, doesn't allow for much uncertainty to be, uncertainty to be expressed. And so we get this false illusion that these sort of very precise, you know, laser decisions are being made that somehow are the path that is right. And, and actually that's, you know, clearly patently not the case that people are making judgments all the time. They're very difficult judgments, balancing things. And what really matters is how you monitor those effects and respond to them and see empirically what is working and what isn't working. But I don't think that's really ever articulated in the public domain because it's too soft and too difficult a message. Yeah, it was interesting. After we did the town hall, one of the things that I was struck by is it's almost like the more we learn, the less we know, right? Or, or we, it takes us down different paths and it feels like you also talked about kind of needing to be in this for the long haul, right? Really understanding what a marathon this is. And I think that's been one of the hardest shifts for people to make because initially it's like, okay, we're going to shelter in place for two weeks. And then it was like a month and now it's who knows when the end of it's going to be. And I, I do feel like it is one of those things where we do have to hunker down. I guess I'm going to ask an, a follow-up question to that, which is with so much information and with things cha changing so quickly and with such demands on people like you needing to be with patients on the front lines, how do you possibly keep up with it all? And you know, how do other physicians keep up with all the, the news and the evolution of what's right and, and, and how we effectively fight this? So there are multiple strategies to support us. Um, one of which is the great efforts of some um, public health authorities and so on to collate literature, to condense it, to, and so on, and to provide it in a digestible form. Obviously, one of the most important interactions is that I work in a team of many colleagues, all of whom are reading different things and we're sharing all that information all the time. And it goes obviously much beyond my own team so that, uh, the WHO, for example, convenes twice a week a call between um, clinical leaders from around the world, from almost every country that wants to join that's been affected by COVID. And we simply share experience, often anecdotal experience, and we're very clear when we're talking about anecdote and when we're talking about science, but it, it's often hypothesis generating rather than coming up with all the answers. It points us in the directions of things we need to explore and things we need to test. And actually, I mean, it, it sounds a little bit like it was a, a, a planted question, but it genuinely wasn't. And um, W2O have provided the support, the administrative support and the um, convening support to WHO for these meetings. And that has made a huge difference to them. And that's being part of W2O's um, support for the COVID response. And that's really important internationally to give people um, the ability to dial into those conferences and hear from people around the world. And when I say around the world, I really mean everywhere. Countries which have very well-developed health structures, country with much less well-resourced healthcare structures. And there is both learning and sharing in all directions there. Well, that's amazing. Thank you for the, the pat on the back. I mean, we are doing everything we can to help and we're not physicians ourselves, although actually some of us uh, are not myself, but um, you know, it's important that we all do whatever we can to, to move this forward. One of the things, speaking of that, that I would like to talk a little bit about is some clinical trials that you're involved in. And I know as we discuss them, 
Um, they're different clinical trials, but they're interesting. And I, I think it's helpful for people to know some of the, the work that's being done to move us forward. So I think a few of them um, that I know of were the discovery, the recovery, and agile, which is the Liverpool, Liverpool platform study. Maybe you could talk about each one of those separately. Yes, I mean, I think without going into the details, I mean, the, what has happened in the space of looking for therapeutics is that in this emergency pandemic situation, the first thing people did was to look amongst the drugs we already have and use for other indications and see whether any of them might work in COVID. Right. And some of the scientific rationale for the things that are being tested is a little bit tenuous, some is a little bit stronger. And they've all been put into these very large phase three platform studies with large numbers of patients and discovery would be one example of that. Recovery would be another example in the UK in the hope that it might unveil an unexpected, well, not unexpected, but um, a, a new effect on COVID and the progression of disease that would allow these drugs, these repurposed drugs to be used very rapidly to help patients. And of course, that has the tremendous advantage that these are licensed drugs, they're scalable drugs, we know a lot about their side effects and so on. But unfortunately, there wasn't much that we already had in the cupboard that looked like a really good candidate for COVID. And as a result, there is a real need, as these trials are all going to be reporting over the next few weeks and months, to have another wave of compounds coming up behind them that are probably a little bit more targeted at the disease specifics. And of course, we've learned more about the disease and what we want to target as well. And so these drugs are emerging now from pharmaceutical companies, from small biotechs, from academia, some of which they had sort of around before but had never really developed, some of which are newly being considered for this indication. And the question is, how can we get these through to patients quickly enough to have any impact on the current epidemic? Because usually this would take years to do because these drugs would go through extensive preclinical testing, then obviously into phase one studies, usually in healthy volunteers, phase two studies, and then eventually reach these large phase three platform studies. And it's really important that we come up with some solution that compresses this drug development tremendously to make it meaningful in a pandemic. And one thing that I've been involved in is an initiative which has borrowed from oncology and borrowed from rare diseases, where instead of doing testing in healthy human volunteers for safety, and then following on after some extensive tests for safety, for looking for efficacy in um, patients, it simultaneously addresses the issue of safety and efficacy by testing drugs right from the outset in COVID-19 patients. And this is a new approach in infectious diseases and is a very meaningful approach both for this and for future epidemics or pandemics. And we hope by compressing drug development time, we can really have an impact in, in a meaningful time when these diseases arises. And COVID-19 is gonna be the first test of this. And we've got some drugs that are just coming through now. They look very promising. I have to say that as you know, as well as I do, the vast majority of drugs that look promising in preclinical studies don't actually ever make it to the clinic because there are many reasons why that doesn't translate into efficacy in disease and in humans. However, 
it's a very important next step. And if any of these work, they're likely to be much more useful and appropriate than the drugs that we've just taken off the shelf and given a go at the beginning of the epidemic. Much as we all hope that they're going to work, we're not at all sure that they will. Right. Well, this is a good segue into the next question. So last week I had another doctor uh, named Dr. Joseph Habush. Uh, He's the founder of an organization called MD Calc, but also an ER doctor. And one of the things he said, which I thought was interesting, a little scary, maybe profound, but related to what you were just talking about is, is that COVID-19 is going to change all of medicine going forward. And I think back to our earlier conversation where we, we talked about the fact that it's almost hard to wrap your brain around how impactful this particular disease, this virus is. Do you share that same belief and you know, maybe expound on a little bit of what you just talked about where we're now going to start doing things differently based on what we're learning and doing to attack COVID-19? Yeah, I'm sure he's right, actually. But I suppose the natural follow-on from the previous question is, have we found a faster way of developing drugs, for example? And actually, there's a compromise in what we're doing because we're saying that not only are we going to look at safety and efficacy, but there's this new dimension in drug development, which is time. There's the pressure of time. But that does bring in some compromise. So when you're not under such pressure of time, you might actually choose to go back to the more laborious, slower way of doing things because it's more meticulous and ultimately it does give you more information that's useful for patients in future. So it's not a given to me that this will um, hasten future drug development except in times of emergency. But then there there are lots of other aspects of medicine which I think COVID will change Um, substantially. And there are two ways of looking at that question, I think. The first of which is while COVID is still around. And that, of course, in itself is going to have a huge impact on medicine because we have to take account of it in everything we do. So that every patient we see coming into the ER room in hospital or coming to see a family physician, we have to consider the possibility that they might have COVID and that that COVID is transmissible to other people and to vulnerable people and so on. And so We have to change the way we practice medicine around that and our interaction with patients. And I think it's going to be a long time, for example, before you see a doctor without wearing a face, a doctor who isn't wearing a face mask and gloves and an apron. Whereas, of course, the vast majority of consultations before were human to human, face to face consultations. And that is a substantial change for patients if you can't see the expression of your physician and interact with them in a normal human way. I suppose there will be a time in future when COVID isn't with us anymore, either because it dies out naturally in the population, perhaps more likely because um, there's a good vaccination vaccine for it, but sometime distant, I have to say. But it would have changed medicine in lots of other ways, I think. And one of the ways it will have changed it in the most generic sense is we've all had to respond very rapidly to this emergency And we've brought back an agility into what we do in medicine, which was rather drowning in process and bureaucracy. And we talked earlier about the team working. And I think we do need to try and capture some of these things because it's for the good of everybody. It's for the good of people working in the profession. It makes the job much more um, enjoyable and professional. And it gives you back that sense of personal responsibility for doing the right thing in your job. But also it's great for patients as well, because what it means is that we can respond properly to their needs. And actually, when we see problems, solve those problems very, very quickly for them. 
I want to ask you a tangential question. I was going to ask you, we had planned on doing this interview, I think it was probably four or five weeks ago, and I dropped it, but I want to bring it back based on some things you just said. Why is this particular virus so different seemingly than others and so hard? I know one, I've read that it impacts uh, both your lower and upper respiratory system, which is somewhat unique. It also has a, a structure to it, the actual virus, where it's got these two sort of, I don't know, hairs or antenna that allow it to stick to the victim or to surfaces much more easily than other viruses do. And this is my layman poor attempt to explain it. But in my mind anyway, it doesn't feel like we've ever had anything that's been so tenacious and so devastating, like in, in a combination, like give us a little bit more as to why, why, and have we actually ever seen anything like this before? So um, I think if you ask people in, you know, the middle ages about plague and things like that, they're not viruses, of course, I right. should be clear about that as a bacteria, but um, human history has been shaped by the interaction with microbes and there has been pandemic after pandemic in human history. And it's just that we haven't seen anything like it in modern times and with modern science to apply to it either. It is a bit different from other viruses in lots of ways. It has quite a, a high reproductive number if unchecked. And uh, the most estimates think that it's about three, the reproductive number, meaning that any infected person will on average infect three other people if they are not immune. Now that compares with influenza where it's in the sort of 1.5 range. Now that doesn't sound a very big difference, but this is the mystery of exponential growth. And if you look at the difference over the course of a month of what multiplying by three is compared with multiplying by 1.5, it makes an absolutely huge difference to the spread of the virus. So it spreads quite easily, this virus. In addition to that, it has quite a substantial mortality. It's particularly in older people, of course, people with comorbidities. And so it's a dangerous virus as well. And actually, by the time you get to hospital, and obviously it's only a small group of people that get to hospital, a small proportion of people with coronavirus, but by the time you get to hospital, your chance of dying is getting pretty high, probably not far off the chance of if you had Ebola, for example. Now, of course, that's not a, a very direct comparison because we're only talking about the hospitalized people with coronavirus and the vast majority of people don't need to go to the hospital with it. But it's also particularly difficult because it seems like the traditional public health measures of identifying people once they get ill and isolating them don't work quite as well. And that may be because people can actually transmit the virus in the period before, just before they become symptomatic, for example. And certainly lots of people get very few symptoms or almost no symptoms with it, meaning that they're walking around, they're feeling fine, and it is possible. We don't really know the contribution of those people to transmission, but it's possible that they are contaminating things, surfaces, for example, with the virus, even if they're not coughing much or or, but from their hands and touching their face and then spreading it around. And those people, of course, are very difficult to identify. So it has some really particular challenges, this virus. And also we have no experience of making vaccines, for example, for any related virus. And so there's a big challenge there and we don't have any therapeutics that work for any related virus as well. 
the closely related viruses that everyone thinks of, of course, is SARS itself, which emerged in 2003 and then was quickly contained, um, presumably somewhat less transmissible than this virus. And also MERS. MERS is a disease in, in um, camels, which can spread to humans occasionally as well, and is a related, a bit more distantly related. But we've never seen anything like this, where it's spread from human to human so easily around the world. And of course, not a single person in the world had ever seen this virus before, which means that absolutely everybody was non-immune to this virus, and the whole world can be infected by it. Well, it's crazy. And, you know, that's an interesting point about the compounding. And one of the things I came from financial services early days, and we were taught that the eighth wonder of the world was compounding. You know, if you took a penny and doubled it every day, that you'd be a millionaire, you know, in the not too distant future. So that that actually does explain a lot of why it's so dangerous. One of the things that you did uh, mention, and I know we've talked a little bit about this, but I feel like there's some misperceptions around the N95 masks, you know, as you were talking about people inadvertently spreading this. Uh, I, I think it's better that people are starting to wear them. Airlines are starting to mandate it. But I also feel like we're all we're sort of maybe using it as something that's not as uh, protective and or safe as we think it might be. So it would be good to maybe dispel some of the myths around what an N95 mask does do and what it doesn't do, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Well, I mean, an N95 mask in hospital is crucial for healthcare workers who are putting themselves in the line of fire and are doing things that generate aerosols in hospital. It's very important for them to be protected with the masks. What we usually talk about in the community when people are going on airlines and so on is not in an N95 masks, of course, but it's using some face covering of some kind, either a surgical mask or often just a piece of material that's been fashioned into a mask or tied around the face. And there is very little evidence that these protect that individual who's wearing this covering from acquiring the infection. And there is perhaps some hope that it might prevent transmit the infection to other people. So for example, if you were to cough, the fact that it would contain it somewhat. But I think it's really crucial to think about the scenario here. Because if you're ill and you're coughing or you have a temperature, actually you shouldn't be out there at all. The crucial thing is that you stay at home until you're better. And so if you were to follow that advice, then we're really only talking about protecting people from being infected by someone who's asymptomatic, because otherwise they shouldn't be out there at all. And it's not at all clear that those people are that important in the transmission of infection. We did talk about it a little bit earlier. And also, when people put a mask on or a face covering, there's a terrible tendency to play around with it and to fiddle right. with it. And that's very likely both to contaminate their own hands, which may then contaminate the environment. And this brings us back to the absolutely crucial nature of hand washing in protecting against the virus, probably much more than wearing a mask. It's essential to wash your hands, not touch your face when you're out in public place. It's very difficult to do, but you can train yourself to do it. And then as soon as you get to a place of safety, be it your own home and particularly your desk, and particularly if you're going to eat any food or drink anything, is to wash your hands or gel your hands immediately beforehand. So it's possible that with the face mask, you contaminate your hands more, but also you bring your hands to your face more, which itself is a danger to you. 
it's not at all clear what the balance is between all these various things. So I think the only thing to say is that masks are quite good in that they signal to everybody that you're sort of trying to be careful. They remind us all that coronavirus is out there and that we need to maintain social distancing. It might remind you to wash your hands as well, and particularly if you handle your mask. So for example, if you come home, you take your mask off, it's very important to wash your hands afterwards. But whether in itself it is a sort of functional barrier against infection is actually very doubtful. Well, I know after you gave that advice a couple of weeks ago, I am now very careful you know, when I go to the grocery store and I come home, I've wiped my hands down and made sure they're clean and don't, you know, I take it off of my car versus taking it off as soon as I walk out the door. So that was A, a good explanation and B, thank you for the, the PSA there. Um, last question around this and then I'll give you an opportunity if there's anything else we haven't covered that you would like to impart before we get to our final fun question. How op uh, optimistic are you about the prospect of being able to eradicate COVID-19 and why? I'm optimistic about it, but what is unknowable is the timescale. And it is also plausible that we fail to eradicate it. The reason I'm optimistic is that I think people will develop a vaccine for it. I'm not sure how quick that's going to be. And of course, in order to eradicate a virus, that vaccine has to be deployed globally on a global scale and that is uh, an incredible challenge we're talking about billions and billions of doses but it is possible to get to a situ situation excuse me where there's a combination of herd immunity meaning that people who've already had the virus and probably have some immunity of course it's a bit contentious how long that immunity lasts for plus vaccination to provide enough immunity to actually mean that the virus doesn't have any hosts left to infect and therefore will be eradicated. But that is a long, long way off, I think, especially on a global scale. And the world is so interconnected now that it's quite hard to envisage. So in fact, having said that at the beginning of this, having said I'm optimistic, the more I challenge myself about it, the less optimistic I'm feeling about it. And that this is something we're going to have to live with for a long time to come, I think. Well, I think if anything, it just, it reminds us that this is going to be a marathon and I know it's hard because I've had some friends that have been talking in a private group just about how difficult this really is hitting them. And I think sometimes just knowing that it isn't going to be done in another two weeks or another month and really bracing yourself, it doesn't make it easier, but at least it gives you probably a little bit more ammunition to be able to be mentally prepared and just to do the things that you need to do and I know with Dr. Habush, one of the things he said that he's seeing as like one of the most impactful blunt instruments fighting this is just social distancing and sheltering in place, that those are the things that are helping to flatten the curve. And I don't know if you agree with that or not, but it seems like based on everything you said, you know, really being um, good about washing hands, really be good about staying, you know, at home, especially if you do have the symptoms, not infecting people and just being really, really smart, smarter than we've ever been before about how we treat ourselves and how we, uh, you know, treat public health. I, I agree entirely um, with Dr. Bush. And I think that we will learn to, we will learn new ways of living that take account of the virus, just like we were talking about new ways of practicing medicine. So I don't think everyone's going to be stuck in their homes. I think if we were able to get a vaccine, at least we could start 
immunising people who were most at risk. That would be an obvious thing to do if the vaccine is suitable for those groups. And in addition to that, if we can find a therapy for it, then our risk, risk tolerance could become much, much higher. Because after all, there are lots of really dangerous infections out there, but we live with them. And we live with them partly because we've got treatments for them, partly because we're fatalistic about it, partly because we've got vaccines for them. So it's some sort of mix of all those things that we're going to have to come to terms with, really. Yeah, it's a new reality, and, and those are all helpful. And I think uh, this last question, which is more of a fun question, lighter note, probably has never been more applicable, right? Because in some ways, a lot of us are living on our own private deserted islands, or hopefully we don't ever get to the point where that's all the, you know, the only safe place to be. But I do like to find out a little bit more about the human side of our guests, you know, back to the humanity piece. And I always love to get the thinking on uh, if you could only take one album with you, uh, two-year deserted island, which would it be and why? Well, I, I'm old enough to know what an album is, of course. Um, and I, I, couldn't really, I couldn't really pick one because then people will judge me, you see. And uh, so I'll give a slightly different answer, which is that um, when I had my 50th birthday some while ago, just for my own internal consumption, but for no other reason, I put together a playlist of tracks, which was one track from every year of my life. And these were tracks that really resonated with me from those years. I don't think they were the best music by any means from those eras, but they just took me straight back to that time, be it in my parents' house at home or at university or things that have happened subsequently. They just were tracks of my life really in that way. And, uh, so I suppose I would probably take that with me because that would give me all, all the memories while I was there on the desert island and allow me to go back to those times, those happy times that they've been. Well, usually I don't let people wiggle off the hook with an answer like that, but I actually love that because I think it does get at this element of picking you know, a single track. And I think you're right. It's, I've had to do the exercise with friends, the fun exercise of pick you know, 10 albums from each decade and it's really hard to narrow them down because, you know, like I love the Beatles and I picked the White Album as my Deserted Island album. But, you know, there are a lot of other songs I like more. It just happens to be the one that's best put together. I guess my follow up to that is any chance that's on Spotify and maybe available publicly so we can link to that. <laughs> well, there's some very embarrassing tracks on there, you know. <laughs> well, that's the best. Those uh, are the best kind. <laughs> no, of course they are. Of course they are. Okay. Well, we, we'll have to see if we can hunt that down. In the meantime, this is Aaron Strout, uh, CMO W2O, host of the What to Know podcast. I am so grateful and appreciative, not only for what you're doing uh, on a lot of different fronts, but that you took the time to sit down with us. And um, this is Sir, uh, sorry, I, I always screw this up, but it's Dr. Sir Michael Jacobs, who is the Clinical Director of Infection at the Royal Free Hospital in London, a great guy in general and uh, very, very gracious with your time. Thank you so much. No, it's a pleasure, Aaron. And uh, don't worry about screwing it up. I never use the title, sir, except when I'm fundraising. Well, that's a good way to do it. And it, it's important because I know you said earlier, it's almost embarrassing because it's such a, it was such a team effort. But, you know, clearly you've done amazing things and you're a very giving person. And, and what you're doing right now to help fight this is, is you know, clearly something that demonstrates just what a good person you are and, and what you're putting out into the world. So thank you. Thanks for having me, Aaron.
Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.